going to read verse 13 because it's helpful as you move into 14. It sets the context, giving us the key word. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I asked, have they not heard? Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then, Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And with that statement, Romans chapter 10, as we order it, has come to an end. In order to appreciate what Paul is teaching his readers in today's text, I want to take a few moments here at the beginning to create a picture in your mind. So you're going to have to use your imagination. So I'm going to get you ready for that by warning you a second time. I'm going to try to put a picture in your mind because some of you, your imaginations are already engaged somewhere else this morning. So this will call us into the room and help us put a picture in mind. And it's, it's an unusual one, but it's one that will help us throughout the course of this passage to understand and appreciate what we hear here. Imagine you're out walking in a large meadow on a beautiful summer day. Sun is shining brightly. The, the sky is a, a cloudless expanse of, of deep, rich blue. The air is warm. There's a cool breeze blowing that makes walking an unusually pleasant experience. And the breeze is creating waves in the waist-high prairie grass all around you that make you feel more like you're floating than walking. There are many, many others walking along with you, all in the same direction. But you're not bunched together. There's, there's enough space between you that you can... You can hear the serene quietness that surrounds you with, without the slightest distraction. But you're still close enough together that you can talk easily without raising your voice. You're all heading to a destination of your own choosing on the far side of this large meadow. 
But you're in no hurry to arrive there. And honestly, the day is just so nice that, that the walk itself feels like an equally desirable destination. Suddenly, though, uh, a slight noise begins to draw your attention. It's almost inaudible at first, but it's still very different from the whispering sounds that have been filling your ears up until now. It's disturbing, somehow. A little at a time, you realize why. You begin to recognize it as human voices yelling from far, far away. And by the time you're recognizing what it is you're hearing, you're really not sure how long you've been hearing this noise. It's almost like they're awakening you from sleep more than approaching you from a great distance, but they're getting louder. As they draw nearer, you can hear that they're shouting warnings. Get out of the meadow! Turn around right now! Those are the first instructions that you can make out. Your first thought on this beautiful day is that they must be crazy. But as they get even closer, these approaching people start providing crisp explanations for their charges. Dangerous beasts live in this meadow. They hide in the tall grass and just wait for their prey to approach. And there are bogs filled with quicksand that that don't show up in the waving grass. Get out of the meadow. Turn around. There's the picture. Switch roles now and imagine that you're one of the yelling voices. Okay? Shift gears in your imagination. You're one of the yelling voices now. The meadow is part of a large ranch with with a generous owner who's erected wire fences and posted warnings all around the perimeter of his property that all these travelers have disregarded and now at this stage on this day barely recall. They climbed the fences, they skirted the signs just to take a walk in this beautiful meadow on this beautiful day on their way to their desired destination. So you and some others have been sent out by the rancher to warn them yet again of the inescapable dangers hidden in the meadow and to call them back. To your shock and amazement, though, almost none of them respond. Some act like they don't hear you. Others outright refuse to listen like like you're lying to them. So you begin doing the only thing you can. You you physically pick up the one nearest to you, throwing them over your shoulder and running as fast as you can to safety. You drop them outside the fence, then run back and get another. By now, though, you can start to hear the screams in the distance of the ones who are discovering the bog or, or perhaps happening upon one of the beasts. But you still pick up another and run back to the fence and then you return again and again and again 
until you see no one else that you can save. Finally, you climb over the fence and out of the meadow. You flop down among those whom you've carried, who've, who've since been watching as though from the sidelines, hearing the distant screams. Now they're just so thankful that you were sent with that warning and that you were willing to go, risking your life to save theirs. But none of you can fully grasp why it is that anyone would have ignored such a warning. Not to mention the plurality of the warnings that were sent. I'm sure you recognize this scene by now. It becomes more and more obvious the longer it continues. But I think it can help us understand what we're hearing from Paul here in Romans 10. I think it can put a scene in our minds that can help us categorize and understand and appreciate the instructions given to us in this passage and what we learn about God and about his salvation here. Let's look at this passage in three parts. And you see those listed for you in your bulletin there. Paul spotlights God's faithful delivery of the gospel. That's verses 14 and 15. Paul identifies our problem receiving the gospel. That's verses 16 and 17. And then Paul confirms our responsibility for this problem in verses 17, or 18 through 21. Let me help you with one thing. That story is not intended to be an illustration of this passage. We'll need to walk through the content of this passage to understand what it's saying. It just has put a thought in our minds that we'll be able to reference a few times as we move in order to appreciate what we're hearing here. But we begin by hearing Paul at this stage of his argument spotlighting God's faithful delivery of the gospel. And this is something that's good for us to understand because typically Romans 10, when it's taken out of the context of Romans 9 through 11, this is just sort of a roadmap toward salvation. This is, this is confirming what you have to do in order to share the gospel meaningfully with someone. But actually, in context, it's quite different than that. What Paul is spotlighting here is not so much how you become a believer, although it is surely helpful for that. He's actually spotlighting the faithfulness of God in having delivered the saving message to his people. And in so doing, rescued them from a certain fate where they were ignoring the signs up until now. So Romans 10 is doing something a little bit different than we can often think when we hear it quoted. Let's walk through it now and see what we see here. First of all, Paul spotlights God's faithful delivery of the gospel. Paul has just recited one of the core principles of God's eternal saving plan of redemption in verse 13. That's why we included it with the reading this morning. It's quoted from the prophet Joel in Joel 2.32. Paul wrote, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Praise God for that. Everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So salvation is available to all who will just humble themselves before God in repentance of their sin and in trust in the saving work of Jesus as their propitiation. Remember that word from chapter 3? 
as the basis of their reconciliation with God. We, we trust Christ. As the basis of our reconciliation with God, we will be saved by him. Paul says that's what it means to call on the name of the Lord, to come to him in repentance and faith. But that just gets Paul started on this series of questions that's here in verses 14 and 15. One that's intended, this progression, intended to clarify how it happened that God's people called on his name. What did God do enabling that calling? But it's also to demonstrate the truth of his quote from Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, that appeared back in verse 8. Do you remember that? The word of God is near you. God hasn't left us on our own. That's what we discovered there. He hasn't left us on our own to go out and find him. He hasn't left us on our own to, to contribute to our salvation in any way, including, as he was saying there, going to heaven and bringing Christ down to become sacrifice for our sins or, or going into the grave to bring him up in the resurrection. None of that has depended on us. None of the work that God has done to save us is on us. God has brought it near. The word of God is near you. That's what we heard. And Paul is illustrating that again in verses 14 and following as this chapter comes to a close. God hasn't left us on our own to go out and find him or really to do anything that contributes to our salvation. Now, verses 14 and 15 here string together questions that are meant to operate as a unit, proving that God has brought salvation right to Israel's doorstep and Israel is in the foreground throughout this passage, but also that he's brought the saving message to each and every one of our doorsteps in the same way. So even though Israel might be in the foreground, the church from the nations is standing in the background through this whole passage. And it's really talking about both and, and it's moving back and forth, but in emphasis from one to the other, but neither of them is ever excluded from the picture. So the questions are intended to confirm that God has delivered salvation and set it right in front of us. Verse 14, How then will they call on him whom they've not believed, and how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? We're supposed to say they, they won't call on him. They, they can't believe in him if they've never heard of him. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? They need to hear the message. And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? The least attractive, most ineffective, and yet absolutely essential, if the gospel has come to you, feet of the messenger are beautiful when it's salvation that the messenger delivered. Do you follow what Paul is saying here? What Paul is affirming here is that God has acted to send preachers of the good news of the gospel that people can hear and believe and call on the name of the Lord and be saved. God has done that. It's a rescue, just like in the grassy meadow. 
God has sent out messengers to warn of the very present dangers in this meadow of a world and to proclaim to them faithfully the only way that they can be saved, every one of those who's out on the walk. That's where this passage begins. God has faithfully delivered our salvation. Yet the very next word we read as we move into section 2 is, but. God has made salvation possible. He has accomplished all that's needed for it, and he has brought it and set it in front of us. But, verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Some have, but not all. And this is just the way God has told us it would be. We've seen this as we've moved through chapters 9 through 11, but really going all the way back to the beginning of Romans as Paul has been building this case for the fact that salvation is of the Lord. So this is just the way God has told us it would be. Finishing verse 16, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Isaiah, we know that he was sent out to preach and was told that those who are listening to him wouldn't hear. And Isaiah is saying here, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? The same prophet whom Paul quoted about the beautiful feet of the gospel messengers, Isaiah 52, 7, poses this question in the same context, Isaiah 53, 1. Lord, who's listening? It's hard to believe, isn't it? That some would hear the good news of salvation and not heed it, not listen to it, not receive it, not embrace it with gratitude. It's almost impossible to believe. In fact, most outright reject it. But that's how it works. It's just like those in the summer meadow in our opening image. No one will turn around unless someone takes hold of them and saves them. That's how it works. Unless someone turns them around and walks them to safety, they will not be saved. Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's telling us the same thing we heard back in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Just as in verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But that's just the problem. Not all who hear and understand will actually turn and be saved. Do you hear that? Not all who hear and understand will actually turn and be saved. So Paul poses a couple of more questions that clarify where the responsibility lies for this breakdown. And that moves us into section 3. Paul confirms our responsibility for this problem. Verse 18, But I ask, have they not heard? 
Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So if there's a problem, it's not that the message hasn't been delivered. That's the thing we can conclude from this answer, but it's a really interesting answer because what Paul does here to prove his point that their voice has gone out into all the world or that Israel has heard and that all indeed have heard the gospel message is to quote Psalm 19. Psalm 19, ring a bell? Does Psalm 19 bring something back to mind for you? Psalm 19 is talking about God's general general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day to day they pour forth speech. Night to night they display knowledge. It's quoting Psalm 119 about God's general revelation, giving constant testimony everywhere, all the time, of his glory and his handiwork. Almost like what we read in Romans 1, that his eternal power and divine nature are just evident because creation is giving testimony to it all the time. So Psalm 19, which is talking about God's general revelation, giving constant testimony to his glory and his handiwork, even so, Paul is saying, his special revelation in Jesus, the word of Christ, has been spread all over the earth. Or, as John Calvin observed, seeing implications for yet broader themes in this portion of Romans, Psalm 19 gives evidence that God didn't confine his revelation, the revelation of himself, to Israel alone, even under the old covenant. Even under the old covenant, all of creation is proclaiming the presence and power of God to anybody who sees it. So God didn't confine his revelation of himself to Israel, even there, under the old covenant. But it is also the old covenant and his general revelation prelude to the fact that he would both send his saving message to the nations and that he would spread it to the ends of the world. That seems to be what Paul is referencing here as he makes, as he quotes Psalm 119. Has Israel not heard? (laughs) That's not even possible. God has communicated himself to everyone who's watching. And if that's what he's done with general revelation, his special revelation isn't going to be more limited than that. Israel's heard. The nations have heard. Heard to the point that they are accountable before God for their sin and unbelief. That's the sweetness of what we hear as Paul quotes Psalm 19 of all Old Testament passages to confirm that the word has gone out. That Israel has heard. To answer that question, have they not heard? So that confirms that Israel hasn't failed to hear the good news. Yes, they heard, verse 18, but I ask, verse verse 19, did Israel not understand? Okay, they heard it. Did they, do they not get it? They don't understand the message? Yes, they also understood. And here he gives a, a couple of points to confirm his answer. 
First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Quoting Deuteronomy 32. Moses' messages to the people of Israel before he steps away and they are led by Joshua into the promised land. Again, a very interesting choice of passages that Paul makes here. Moses says, oh, did they not understand? Well, yeah, didn't you read Moses? I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation and a foolish nation I will make you angry. Do you hear the answer? That's a challenging one, isn't it? What Paul is doing here is proving not only that Israel heard the good news that was preached, but that they understood its implications to the degree that they were jealous and angry with those who received it and believed it. You can't say that you don't get something if you're angry with those who affirm it. Paul is overshooting here and saying, not only did you understand it, you understood its implications so that when someone else believed it, it made you mad. They got it. They understood. And he's still arguing from the Old Testament. I love that. It's not just fuller revelation as the New Covenant era begins that helps us see this. What Paul is saying is this was God's plan all along and exactly what he said would happen with regard to salvation is playing out in front of your eyes. Yes, Israel heard, and yes, they understood. They proved it once again by their own actions and their own responses as others embraced the truth of the gospel, the truth of their promised Messiah being Jesus. That's his first answer. Second, then Isaiah was so bold as to say, and here the prophet is speaking for God, I have found, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have been shown, my, or I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Essentially giving us a similar statement that we heard back in chapter 9, verse 30. I have been found by those who did not seek me. Talking about the Gentiles, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So God has revealed himself to the Gentiles. Verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Proving to everyone watching, even to themselves, that Israel had nothing special about them at all except what God chose to give them. And he gave them considerable blessings that have been listed right here in this section of Romans as it began. But what we're seeing here as we read this prophecy, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. What we are seeing is that Israel can't do anything without God's help. Nor can the Gentiles. Nor can any of us. If God doesn't intervene and open our eyes, he can bring his eternal salvation and his promised Messiah right to our doorstep, and we will reject it with jealous anger, indignant at the very thought that these gifts might be from God. 
That's the human heart's response to the gospel. That was Israel's response to the gospel. That's the response of the nations to the gospel. But right now, a special rescuing work of God is going on among the nations. We'll see more of that as we move into chapter 11 in just a few weeks. So for Israel, if God doesn't intervene and open their eyes, he can bring his eternal salvation and his promised Messiah right to their doorstep. And not only will they not recognize it, they actually will. And reject with jealous anger those who receive him. Indignant at the very thought that this is the plan of God. Didn't play out the way they wanted. And therefore, they were not willing to see it. Not willing to see it. So just unpacking verse 21 a little bit, all day long, meaning all through this age, you remember 2 Peter 3? With God, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is a day, all day long, from the very beginning, since the need for salvation arose, my hands have been held out to this people, but they are a disobedient and a contrary people. Think of a loving mother teaching her child to walk, holding out her hands, offering to assist. And the child refusing. Doesn't even make sense, does it? But that's the picture. That's the picture here. That's about how much sense it makes, too. Israel's rejection of God and salvation. Think of a devoted father holding out his hands to a wayward son offering to free him from this trap that he's fallen into yet again and the son refusing that's how much sense it makes but that's the human heart with regard to salvation and there's the vivid imagery with which Paul presents it in this text What's even more strange, though, is that some still want to levy a charge against God, blaming him for Israel's unbelief. As though it's God's fault if Israel still marches on to their destruction in vast numbers when he's saving some from among them. Some still want to levy the charge against God, blaming him for sin and unbelief. Let me ask a question. How many of us thought the rancher in that little vignette that we crafted this morning was guilty for the death of those people who wouldn't turn? Did any of us even give a thought to that possibility? How many of us even considered asking why the rancher didn't send out more messengers to save more people who, even though the people that were there wouldn't listen to the messengers he sent? How many of us even gave a thought to that possibility? How many of us even thought about blaming the messengers themselves for not saving more 
for maybe not running a bit faster or maybe not throwing one over each shoulder and carrying two at a time rather than going back one after another. Do we even think about that possibility in that vignette? I doubt any of us blamed the rancher or the messengers. We just wondered, what is wrong with you? Why don't you just listen to the warning and, and turn around? Why don't you do that? And that, I believe, is precisely the perspective Paul is wanting his readers to gain right here. That is how salvation works. I know this is not a one-for-one -one correspondence, this vignette. The rancher doesn't have absolute power like God does. And the analogy breaks down at a number of other points. The illustration is still a good one. When we put this in the context, we understand not, not even our own questions about how this works make sense to us. But somehow, because it's God and his saving grace that he's putting on display, we feel freedom oftentimes to sit in judgment of how he accomplishes his salvation. And what it appears to us that he comes out. We listen and tend to blame God, asking, why don't you save more? In the same way that we want to think that choosing Christ as Savior is our own decision, that it's in our hands, it's within our grasp, within our power, we also tend to want to hold God responsible for the fact that not more are saved. We think in funny ways, we human beings. But we're fallen and broken, and we prove it regularly by the way that we view the world and by the way that we sit in judgment of the God who has made it. All along, even with these perspectives, in reality, we resist every overture God makes, every one of them, every warning he issues, every call he extends, we reject with prejudice. And even then, we receive his salvation only as he picks us up and throws us over his shoulder and carries us to safety himself. Praise God that he's willing to do that. Amen? Well, that's the way it is with Israel, and that's the way it is with the nations. And as I said, I believe that's the point Paul wants us to understand from this section of the letter as he draws this thought to a conclusion. So, what is our takeaway today? What is our takeaway today? I would say it is, behold, see, grasp, understand the fact that God has brought salvation near, right to your doorstep. Don't look past it. Receive it. Embrace it by faith. Trust in the finished work 
of Christ as your propitiation. Removing your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. Absorbing the, the penalty of your sin in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Embrace this by faith and be reconciled to God. There's today's takeaway. I am honestly concerned that the percentage of those who have not done that in this body is higher than we might imagine. That's not intended to strike fear in our hearts. That's just tended, intended to help us open our eyes to the saving work of God and to the depth of the resistance that we feel in our own hearts toward that. My friends, if the Spirit of God is at work in your heart drawing you to saving faith, you'll know it. You'll sense it. That intrigue with the message, that sense of desire to experience that fullness, that, 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 that yearning to know God, that yearning to be numbered among the fellowship of His people that seems so sweet, but you always seem to be sitting on the outskirts of it. That work is evidence of the work of the Spirit because that's not the work of the flesh. And I urge you to embrace that, to receive it by faith, to be reconciled to God. Hear the preaching of the good news. Believe it. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. That, that is our takeaway today. Sound good? Let's pray together. And as I pray, I'm going to invite the musicians to return to the platform but we have another matter to do before communion so I'm going to ask the communion servers to hold off just a moment um, until after we have a new member induction so um, pray with me now and let's pray that God does this work in our hearts even as we prayed at the beginning and that he would be glorified in the spread of his salvation to the praise of his glory even right here among us Heavenly Father we thank you for the careful and compelling work that the Apostle Paul has done in authoring this letter and particularly this challenging section of this letter. And Father, we know that your Holy Spirit was at work in him, keeping him free from error as he recorded your intended message to your people. And so we give thanks to both authors who have put this text in front of us this morning and we pray Lord God that you would enable us to see for truly if we learn anything from this text it should be that on our own we cannot see or believe or understand or call out to you in sincere repentance and faith and be saved Father, we ask that you would move in among us by your Holy Spirit through your word and save many to the praise of your glory and that we would rejoice together in that sovereign work of God among us and rejoice that you have brought the gospel near and then put it in our minds and hearts with your own hand to accomplish that which you have intended it to accomplish. Father, you are a great and glorious God, and we are a poor and needy people. As we have confessed already this morning, 
Now I pray, Father, that we might know the joy of being reconciled to God by faith in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.